Welcome to Obscurities. I'm your host, Debbie Rashawn, and today we'll get into the ill-fated history of North Brother Island. Individuals, organizations, companies, and municipalities should strive for purpose and meaning to achieve a highly regarded reputation and significance. Those with principles and integrity wish to make lasting, meaningful contributions to society. Anyone could and should make efforts to enhance those around them. If you can be remembered as a kind, caring individual, then you have achieved your purpose. If one's endeavors, though, have a positive impact beyond one's lifetime, stretching into generations, you can achieve greatness and perhaps a bit of immortality. Other times, however, despite best efforts and intentions, a heavy fog will seep in, eroding, slowly erasing, and eventually leaving little trace of significant accomplishments, allocating history to obscurity. North Brother Island is located in the center of the largest metropolitan area by urban land mass. 3,450 square miles contain over 20 million people in the New York metro area. Situated in the East River between the mainland Bronx and Rikers Island lies two small islands. Both islands are now abandoned, but their history is fascinating, especially that of North Brother Island. The indigenous Lenape Native Americans occupied the region, which encompasses New York City and beyond, for generations before European discovery and settlement. The Native Americans highly prized the area and its abundant waterways for transportation, fishing, hunting, and trade. The first European visitor arrived in 1524, and for almost the next century or so, the region was visited occasionally by explorers and fur traders. By the time Henry Hudson arrived in 1609, the ample hunting opportunities could not be ignored any longer. Soon, trading colonies would spring up in the area with New Amsterdam, a Dutch settlement at the southern tip of Manhattan Island, established in 1625. The English took over New Amsterdam in 1664 and renamed it New York City. The population in the region would continue to grow over the next two centuries. The Brothers Islands were named in the early 1600s by Dutch explorer de Geslin which means Brethren or the Companions, and the Englishized names North and South Brothers Islands were adopted by the English. Despite its location in the center of New York City, North Brother Island remained uninhabited until the middle of the 1800s. Strong and dangerous currents present around the island made habitation difficult. Plans for a lighthouse for the island began as early as 1829 due to the dangerous approach to Hell's Gate, the point between Astoria, Queens, and Ward's Island and the East River. Many shipwrecks in the area forced Congress to allocate $5,000 for building a light in the Long Island Sound 
right at the narrows at or around the Brothers Island. At the time, the island owner, Edward Ackerson, refused to sell, and three years of negotiations proved fruitless. Attempts by New York State to condemn and seize the property never gained traction in the legislature, and the idea for a lighthouse on the site was placed on indefinite hold. Nearly two decades later, in 1848, a naval commander was assigned the task of obtaining the island once again for the purpose of constructing a lighthouse. Edward Ackerson, still the owner of the island, was reluctant to sell. Willing to sell two acres of the southern tip for an unreasonable sum, the lighthouse plans were placed on hold once again. It wasn't until 1868 that the title to the southern end of North Brother Island was finally acquired, and planning began for a two-story dwelling with a central tower. The design was similar to several lighthouses built around the Northeast during that time period. In November 1869, the light was lit for the first time, overseen by Finley Fraser, who was assigned as the first head keeper. Lighthouse keepers and their families would live on the island over the next many decades. Fortunately for them, service was less isolated than other more secluded assignments. They were always just a short boat ride to the city. But their time on the island was solitary, at least until the new neighbors arrived. The neighbors arrived in 1871 which saw the construction of a small tuberculosis hospital built by the Sisters of Charity on the island. Its impact on the island was minimal, but that would soon change. In 1883, a proposal for the relocation of Riverview Hospital to the island prompted the installation of a fence around the lighthouse property, separating it, at least theoretically, from the rest of the island. In 1885, the proposal turned reality when Riverview Hospital moved onto North Brother Island. The new hospital absorbed the Sisters of Charity operation. Founded as a smallpox hospital to treat and isolate disease victims, the new facility expanded to include other diseases that require quarantine. The isolation North Brother Island offered was ideal for its mission. The hospital's patients were afflicted with smallpox, tuberculosis, yellow fever, measles, scarlet fever, polio, and typhus. The Riverside Hospital campus grew to over 20 buildings, which included residences for staff and some patients. A small ferry provided transportation services to the island. By all accounts, the hospital flourished and offered effective treatments and programs consistent with care for the time period. But winters were cold and brutal. Food shortages and inadequate heating contributed to mediocre conditions. Transportation was more demanding, though, and criticism was loud and harsh when a six-month-old infant measles victim died during transport to the island. Lack of telephone lines meant some patients who entered the hospital were never heard from again. 1,200 patients were crowded onto the island during a typhus outbreak in 1892. 
Patients were forced into tents due to overcrowding. On June 15, 1904, a devastating and staggering tragedy struck the island. The second deadliest maritime disaster occurred on North Brother Island's shoreline. The passenger ship, the General Slocum, a sidewheel ship, was being chartered by the St. Mark's Evangelical Church for a fun-filled day on the water, with a stop for a picnic at Locust Grove. Many on board were from the local German-American community, as well as some from the local Jewish and Italian communities. In hindsight, it could be argued that the Slocum was a cursed vessel. Four months after launching in 1891, she ran aground, and tugboats were required to pull her out. Three years later, in 1884, she grounded twice, once during a storm, and passengers had to be offloaded onto another ship. She also collided with a tugboat, sustaining substantial damage. The Slocum collided with another vessel in 1898, and in 1901, a charter for the 900 intoxicated anarchists resulted in a riot and attempted mutiny. The crew was able to suppress the uprising, and the captain docked at a pier, and 17 men were arrested. 1902 saw the Slocum ground herself yet again. This time so severely, the 400 passengers had to camp out on the ship overnight, waiting to be freed the next day. Back to that fateful day on June 15, 1904. The vessel was carrying 1,358 passengers and crew, mostly women and children from the church congregation. A fire started on the ship. Accounts vary about how the fire started, but within 30 minutes of the ship's 9 a.m. departure, disaster struck. The captain initially disbelieved and ignored a 12-year-old child's warning of the fire, allowing the fire to strengthen. The fire spread rapidly, and the captain refused to head for the nearest shore. Later, he testified that he wished to avoid spreading the fire on riverside buildings and oil tanks, but in continuing to cruise toward North Brother Island, the flames were fanned by the headwinds. When the crew deployed the fire hoses to fight the fire, the hoses fell apart due to rot. The crew had never practiced a lifeboat drill, and when they attempted to launch a lifeboat, it was found to be wired in place. Panic spread on board quickly. The period clothing of the day, long, layered, flowing dresses were ill-suited for survival in deep waters. Men and women favored heavy wool clothing, which absorbs water and makes swimming extremely difficult. But the choice of burning to death or brave survival in the water was an easy decision. Mothers grabbed life preservers and fitted them to their children. Most, however, were found to be rotted and fell apart immediately. Other reports of inferior flotation within the life preservers circulated at that time. A life preserver was required to weigh a certain amount to ensure the device has the correct amount of flotation, 
To save on costly flotation materials, the manufacturer was accused of inserting iron bars in the preservers to achieve the actual weight to meet the flotation weight requirements. Mothers, desperate to save their children, placed life jackets on them and threw them into the water. Imagine their horror and devastation when they view their child hitting the water and sinking beneath the surface, weighed down by the iron bars within the life jackets. Absolutely terrifying. Those chose to escape the burning ship leapt into the water, but found it extremely difficult to swim. Additionally, those who chose to enter the water near the active paddle boards were pummeled by them. Many drowned, and those who chose not to abandon the boat faced a horrible, fiery death. When General Slocum reached the shallow water at North Brother Island, still burning out of control, she sank, continuing to burn above the waterline. Staff and patients of the Riverview Hospital rushed to the shores and into the waters to assist with the rescue efforts. Survivors pulled from the water were brought into the hospital to be treated. Even patients of the hospital formed human chains to retrieve victims from the East River. For days after the tragedy, bodies washed up on the shore of the North Brother Island. The dead were lined up in the shoreline of the island. When all was said and done, 1,021 people died by drowning or burning to death there were only 321 survivors. The captain was found guilty of criminal negligence for failing to practice fire drills and maintaining firefighting equipment. He was sentenced to 10 years, but served only three and a half years after being pardoned by President William Howard Taft. The company and its officers who owned the ship were indicted, but were not convicted. The impact of the tragedy on the German-American community was shocking. Families were devastated, and suicides were not uncommon. Depression was widespread, and many residents eventually moved away from the area. Similar circumstances impacted the Jewish and Italian communities as well. The remains of General Slocum remained a grim reminder of the tragedy, until they were salvaged and oddly enough repurposed into a barge. Renamed Maryland, the barge was lost in an Atlantic storm in 1911, carrying a load of coal. All four crew members survived the sinking. The wreck now lies off New Jersey's southeastern coast near Strathmere and Sea Isle City in shallow water. Life slowly returned to normal for residents of North Brother Island after the disaster. The hospital continued with its mission to treat patients with infectious diseases. But in the early 1900s, the center received further notoriety with the admission of its most famous patient, Mary Mallon, better known as Typhoid Mary. Typhoid fever, or typhoid, is a specific salmonella bacterial infection. Risk factors include poor hygiene and sanitation. Sickness can result, and death is possible. 
Today, typhoid is still prevalent in developing areas, but a vaccine is available, and clean drinking water, good sanitation, and proper hand washing help prevent typhoid. In the 1900s, though, typhoid outbreaks terrorized neighborhoods and communities, and there was not a great deal of understanding of the disease. New York City experienced sporadic outbreaks from 1900 to 1907, and the health department was unsuccessful in tracking the cause. When Walter Bowen's daughter contracted typhoid and died, he hired an investigator to locate the source. George Soper tracked typhoid outbreaks within affluent families and soon found a common denominator in an Irish female cook named Mary Mallon. When Soper confronted Mallon, Mallon reacted poorly, violently disagreeing with Soper's assessment that she was the cause of the outbreaks. Soper enlisted the New York City Health Department's aid, and Mallard was arrested as a public health risk. She did not submit easy. Six people physically forced her onto an ambulance and was forcibly restrained during the ambulance ride and four days in the hospital. When it was confirmed that she had typhoid, she was sentenced to quarantine on North Brother Island's Riverview Hospital. She did not quarantine with grace. She was combative and denied having the disease, even against positive test results. She was the first identified asymptomatic carrier of typhoid, one who carries the disease but has no symptoms. This was a new and unsettling discovery at the time, resulting in a three-year quarantine sentence to Riverview Hospital. When the press got a hold of this story, she was labeled Typhoid Mary, a name she despised. It stuck, though, and was even used in medical journals discussing typhoid. Mallon admitted she seldom washed her hands, which was a disastrous recipe for a cook but common during this time frame. It is estimated Mallon infected 53 people with three resulting deaths. Some consider those estimates too conservative. After three years of isolation and promises never to cook for others again, Mallon was released and given a job as a laundress. The job paid two and one-half times less than what she would have made as a cook, and she eventually began to cook again using fake names and cooking instead of for families, but for kitchens of restaurants and hotels. In 1915, she started work at the Sloan Hospital for Women as a cook in the kitchen. A typhoid outbreak infected 25 people and killed two. As the leading expert in tracking down the source of outbreaks, George Soper was called in to investigate. He soon identified Mary Mallon as a source, and she fled, but was quickly found and arrested by the police. Mallon reluctantly returned to isolation and quarantine at Riverview Hospital on North Brother Island, where she was forced to remain to live out the rest of her life. Because her life sentence, she was eventually given a private one-story cottage on the island. 
She died of complications of a stroke and pneumonia at age 69, 23 years after her second forcible detention at Riverview. Mallon never admitted she carried typhoid. A large tuberculosis pavilion was added to the hospital in 1943, but never used for its intended purpose, supposedly due to the lack of staff. Regardless, with the end of World War II, the island's faculties were repurposed from the hospital to housing for former military personnel returning home from the war and seeking an education at local colleges. As the housing shortage eased, this function of the island complex ceased in 1951. In 1952, the campus once again was repurposed and opened its doors to treat juvenile drug addicts. It claimed to be the first treatment center that offered treatment as well as rehabilitation and education facilities for youth that succumbed to illicit drug use. Heroin addicts were confined here, locked in their rooms, and treated until they were clean. Many claimed they were held against their will. 1953 saw the closure of the lighthouse as automation took over all human duties. A light was mounted to the metal fog bell tower, and the lighthouse was decommissioned by the removal of its entire top level. The rest of the structure was simply abandoned. After nearly a decade of treating drug addictions, Riverview Hospital closed its doors for good in 1964. High costs, reports of staff corruption and misconduct, plus less than stellar stories of former patients forced the facility to close. The entire former hospital complex was left vacant and abandoned. Over the next decades, Thieves would strip the structures of anything left of value. Vandals also left their mark on the remaining buildings on the island. Elements and time would reduce the once grand structures on the island to decay and ruin. Vegetation would grow unfettered, slowly covering and breaking down the forms man erected on the island. In the 1980s, North Brother Island was declared a wildlife sanctuary for colonial wading birds, including herons, gulls, cormorants, and egrets. The general public is forbidden to trespass on the island out of public safety from the decaying structures and disruption to the nesting and habitat of its avian residents. The black-crowned night heron, a threatened shorebird species, has sought refuge on the island, helping to encourage further conservation efforts and eliminate public access. Additionally, one of the region's largest nesting colonies of black-crowned night herons called this island home for almost 30 years. Then, in 2008, the entire colony mysteriously abandoned the island for reasons unknown. Perhaps instinctively, they sensed the tragic history of the island. No one is allowed on the island long enough to report hauntings and ghostly apparitions wandering around. There is no shortage of tragic and shocking history of the isle. No one knows how many lives were lost in Riverview Hospital throughout its history. One can imagine it's relatively high, though, considering the high-risk group of patients seeking treatment 
whether voluntary or not. One must also consider the horrific disaster of the General Slocum and the grisly deaths by drowning and by fire, and the long-fought-for lighthouse simply left to sink deeper and deeper underneath the crawling island foliage to fade away. Maybe it's best that police and conservation officers keep North Brother Island abandoned, but its horrifying history should never be allocated to obscurity. <laughs>